Paradoxically, the more I chased happiness, the less happy I was becoming. You do have you know, agency and autonomy over your domain and that you can invite in joy and delight if you do it deliberately. We're drawing pretty straight lines from being overly concerned about your happiness and things like clinical depression and anxiety. Once we realize that we have control over how we bias our life towards fun and then are grateful for that ability, it tends to be this upward spiral. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, today's episode is so fun. (laughs) It is so fun. It was such an honor to interview Mike Grecker for his book, The Fun Habit. I personally love having a thrilling experience of my life. I embrace the concept of fun personally, so it was really exciting to get a psychological, scientific, researched approach to why we should actually embrace fun in our lives. And we talked about so many cool things in this episode, things you may wonder, like, do people with kids actually have less fun? Should you take pictures for social media? How does that affect fun? What's the difference between fun and happiness? Are you addicted to work? What is the role of autonomy in your life? What is the role of awe and wonder in our experience of the world? Should you go on vacation? my personal thoughts on scrapbooking, and so much more. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. There will be a full transcript and links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. That will be at melanieavalon.com slash fun habit. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, intermittent fasting plus real foods plus life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post. And again, comment there to enter to win something that I love. Speaking of things that I love and fun, who is going to the ninth annual biohacking conference? Would you believe I am? And you guys know I don't like travel. That means that this must be something really fun, really cool to go to. This is Dave Asprey's conference. I had him on the show last week, so hopefully you heard that episode. But this conference, friends, it's in Orlando, June 22nd through 24th. It's going to have all the people in our world. I'm so excited because I get to meet so many guests that I've had on the show, so many friends that I personally have made. Some of the speakers include Max Lugavere, Catherine Arnston from Energy Bits, Dr. Mercola, Philip from Leela Quantum Tech, Rachel Varga. I know my friend Venizadi is going in attendance. So many things. Of course, Dave Asprey will be there. And friends, you can get 40% off tickets. Yes, 40% off. That is a huge discount. To get that, go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code MA40. That's MA40 to get 40% off your tickets. Definitely grab them before they sell out. And I hope I see you there. If you're going, let me know, send me a DM or connect with me in my Facebook group and hopefully we can meet. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. 
I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, 
often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts and friends get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, clean beauty and safe skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, and they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this super fun episode with Mike Rucker. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. It is about a topic (laughs) that I am personally, well, that really colors the experience of my life. So, and I think I'm sort of obsessed with it. And I wasn't aware of any work or book or person who was actually doing due diligence and looking at the science of it. So, that is the topic of fun. And it's actually pretty funny because growing up in my family, I'm literally like the fun person. Like I really value fun and enjoying and relishing all of the moments in my life. And my family 
always says all the time that if I wasn't in the family, the family wouldn't have any fun. So I think it's something that's really important. But what I think is also more important is that people, I think, often write off fun as something that we shouldn't necessarily take seriously. Maybe it doesn't have meaning. Maybe it's not something to focus on in life. So I'm here at Dr. Mike Rucker, and he is going to challenge all of that. He has a new book out called The Fun Habit, How the Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. And I saw the topic and immediately was like, I have to interview this person. And then I read the book and it was everything I wanted it to be and more. So I have so many questions for you. So Dr. Rucker, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thanks for the thorough review of the book. Oh, no, it was awesome. I always really appreciate books aesthetically. Were you involved with the cover, the colors and everything? Yeah, I a tip of the hat to the graphic artists that put it together. I think, you know, we certainly wanted something that stood out. And initially, there were some designs that had imagery and icons, and it just wasn't working. And so, yeah, when that landed, both me and the developmental editor or excuse me, rather the acquiring editor, we're like, okay, this is an easy yes. You know, it's kind of a a homage to uh, Brene's book, you know, the Daring Greatly, you know, similar aesthetic. But yeah, I think, you know, if, if nothing else, I've heard that it's like on every airport bookshelf, which is great. And I think probably just, just cause it looks pretty, you know, it stands up. Oh, that's awesome. So have you been traveling and seen it in the airport? I have. And then, you know, obviously friends have, you know, snap photos like, hey, you know, I was in Philly, your book's there. I was in Florida. So I've gotten about seven or eight different locations. And when I initiated the book tour, my layover was in California. Excuse me. My layover was in Chicago on the way to California. And that's when I first got to see it. Because I think for any first time author, like, you know, the idea of seeing it in, in, in the airport is sort of exciting. And there it was like front and center. And I didn't really know what to expect. And so I just asked someone passing by, could you take a picture of me? And that like created this little flash mob (laughs) signing and selling some books. So that was my first taste. Speaking of fun, I, you know, it was just so endearing. And I remember being so nervous. Like I'm sure the the inscriptions were just awful because my hand was shaking so bad just because I was excited, but nervous at the same time. And then, I mean, it was a very small book tour, you know, people don't do extensive ones too often anymore unless they're celebrities, but you know, it was back in my hometown. So that was, you know, it was less nerve wracking, but yeah, I'll never forget that. It was exciting and intense at the same time. That is so cool. I know. I feel like with book publishing, there's like a few outlets where it's like goals. So it's like, you know, like Barnes and Noble, Target, but airports, I feel like airports are like the goal. So that's so, so cool. Well, I will let listeners know that your work has been all over. So you've been in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, The Telegraph, Psychology Today, Forbes, Thrive Global, Mind Body Green, so many things. But like you said, this was your first book. So and you talk about this in the book extensively. What is your backstory? When did you first become interested in the science of quote fun? And you know, and maybe how does that compare to happiness, for example? But in any case, what led you to write this book? Yeah. So now I have a more discreet answer. It's funny, I've been asked this over and over again, and I don't know that I in- entirely knew, but now I can say it, I think, with you know, some brevity. So it's a few things. My academic background is in workplace wellness. And so this construct that's closely tied to fun 
the construct of autonomy and how much that plays into our well-being, I think was the underpinning, probably the reason I felt that I had enough wisdom to talk about the subject matter. As a behavioral scientist, hedonic tone is an important component, but often overlooked of creating good habits, right? We know we're drawn to things that are fun. And so more and more, we're talking about how can we make things more fun, you know, at an intervention level so that people actually stick with them. So that's the interest, you know, from a scientific standpoint, from a personal standpoint, you know, the origin of really, you know, putting pen to paper is that I'm a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. And why that's important is I've been using those tools for essentially once, you know, when that the facet of that of the IPPA was brought forth in 2005, you know, we were really looking at all of these tools like gratitude, mindfulness, and I had been using those tools fairly effectively for almost a decade to the point I had it fairly optimized. And then when my younger brother passed away in 2016, I really got knocked off my pedestal. And long story short, I continued to try to use all of these tools of optimism and positivity to get myself, you know, back to a state of happiness and paradoxically found that the more I chased happiness, the less happy I was becoming. And I wanted to unpack that. And I guess serendipitously, emerging research during that time was supporting that. You know, now we talk about toxic positivity in a fairly common way. But back then, we weren't really looking at, you know, how the motivation of good vibes only wasn't hitting. And actually, really, especially in the West, causing problems. And so, you know, I wanted to unpack why that was. And that was the beginning of that journey. Awesome. And like you said in the book, you actually wrote it at the start of the pandemic. Is that when you started it? Yeah. So the manuscript was very academic in nature. In 2016, I just finished my dissertation and so still had like idle hands, you know, so I think I would have written, you know, anything at that point. And so the manuscript was finished pre-pandemic, but then when it got sold, Simon Schuster rightfully was like, you know, this reads like a literature review, you're going to have to, you know, blow some life into it. And so the, you know, the rewriting of the manuscript is really what, you know, the book that you have today was done during the pandemic. Well, you did a really good job of infusing it with a lot of character. Like you tell so much of your own personal stories, and then you have these like a wall of fame museum for different historical figures who exhibited characteristics of fun, like Einstein. (laughs) I thought that was so cool. So a question though, about people's like, so going back to the happiness concept. So happiness, you just talked about it, about how ever so, I'm so sorry about your brother, by the way. And so you talked about how you felt this need to return to a state of happiness. And I think people often feel like they have need to find happiness. Well, I guess we need to define what happiness is. But after, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we'll start there. What is happiness? Yeah. And so that's what's interesting, right? In the, you know, I think happiness could be anything to anyone. And so, but when you write a book like this, you need to define it. And for me, I went to the academic sort of understanding. And I think a lot of what is prescribed to us, you know, if we're allowing happiness to be marketed to us, this idea of subjective well-being, right? That you can, that it's really this act of evaluation and you look at happiness as a spectrum, like how happy am I now? How happy am I compared to my neighbors? You know, it's this general sense of, 
you know, where do I rank within my social structure? Like, am I happier, you know, than X, Y, Z? And so when you look at it that way, it's problematic in a couple ways. One, when you quantify it, right, what happens when you do get to that peak measure? Like, you know, again, where I was in 2016, where I thought I had everything going for me, really the only direction from there is to the bottom, right? Like you're going to fall off that pedestal at some point. The other is when you're always sort of in that state of evaluation. So it becomes less an act of mindfulness and more an act of rumination. If you're not where you want to be, you know, you're sort of striving for some sort of curated ideal, which happens more and more now with social media, then you start to perseverate on that gap between where you want to be and, and where you are today. And so that rumination is almost like cognitive behavioral therapy in reverse, right? You start to have these negative scripts like, oh, well, if happiness is over there and I'm here, I must not be happy. And that can get insidious because over time, then you just always are sort of yearning for something where the goalpost is always moving. And so that's where happiness has gotten pretty problematic here, especially in the United States. So does unhappiness then always require some level of comparison, like either to other people, so I'm not as happy as other people, or within yourself, like I'm not as happy as I could be? Because if you don't compare to anything, you would just be. Right. And so that, you know, that's more an existential argument, I think for me, you know, but you're spot on, right? I meant that idea is where am I in the moment? And so these things are meant to be ephemeral, but if you're thinking about trying to create some sort of a consistency instead of really enjoying the moments that are in front of you, that's when it can become problematic because you start to lose that emotional flexibility that makes us okay if maybe we get in a fender bender or you know something casually bad happens to us and we realize that that's going to be as ephemeral as the things that we enjoy. And so when you're always kind of focused on you know this state of evaluation and the outcome, then when things do go wrong, they become a lot more problematic. And over time, if that's all you're kind of steering your ship towards, then it can lead to real clinical outcomes. Again, as you know, in the book, I you know showcase empirical evidence that we're drawing pretty straight lines from being overly concerned about your happiness and things like clinical depression and anxiety. Are some people, and I guess it's kind of like the glass half empty, glass half full, but are some people just like happy. I don't know. I kept thinking about this when I was reading that whole chapter and then throughout the book. Like I personally, I don't know. I just always feel happy. So even if something really bad happened, like I went through something personal recently that was pretty bad for my experience of it. And I remember right after people were asking, or like my sister was asking, like, are you okay? Like, are you going to be like depressed? And like, for me, it's just like, no, like my thought of like happiness doesn't really change. Like I can experience these bad things, but it doesn't really ever make me feel like I wouldn't be happy. And so my question is, are some people like that? And some people just aren't? And if so, why? And also how far back does it go? Like when you're born, are you set up to be happy or not? So those are great questions. I'm going to lean on the research of Sonia Lubomirsky. She's out of UC Riverside. And what she's pulled together from various research is that about 50% is genetically predetermined. So, you know, based on you know, the accessibility of neurochemicals like oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin, 
you could have a biological slant to just feeling better about life. 10% is set up by your happenstance. So, you know, we know that money only has a certain amount of utility, but if you are in a fairly low socioeconomic class, there are going to be headwinds and a lack of privilege that other folks don't have. Once you get to upper middle class, the effect of your circumstance tends to level out, but there's certainly, we can't skirt the fact that some people are privileged and some people aren't, right? So that's about 10%. There's 40% that's in our control. And so that's where the agency and autonomy and the wisdom that we have to navigate our life really comes into play. And so if you have a poor set of tools and don't really believe that you have control over the things that happen to you, that's when you can get in these states where, again, you're ruminating sort of on your misfortune. You don't believe that you can change your circumstance and you tend to see these downward spirals. Now, if you can maneuver that 40% in your favor, and it sounds like inherently you already have some of these skill sets, then you can realize like, okay, this is an appropriate time to not feel great. Like I might not necessarily tell my sister I'm happy, but I do know that I can find ways to mitigate the fact that, you know, at least episodically right now does kind of suck, but I'll get back there, right? So a lot of it has to do with you understanding that you do have, you know, agency and autonomy over your domain and that you can invite in joy and delight if you do it deliberately. Awesome. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause the way I feel about it, I feel like there's like me, like my inner core that's very, I don't know. I, I'm all <laughs> very happy. And then there's, you know, life experiences that might be not fun or sad or whatever they may be, but they're like layers. They're not actually touching my inner spirit, <laughs> if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. I think, you know, because we could get deep in the weeds here, but, you know, your propensity to hold on to that, your propensity to potentially have it. The same circumstance might be traumatic for someone and truly traumatic, right? They experience it as pure trauma where another person can, even though it's, you know, equally as bad, will evaluate it in a different way and, sort, you know, find coping mechanisms to get through it. That's why you see, you know, at the most extreme people that go to war and some people come back with a certain amount of resilience and some people come back, you know, with a clinical outcome like PTSD, some of that's going to have a biological component. Some of it's going to be what sort of psychological resources did you have to have the resilience to get through that? And so, you know, at a casual level, we talk about it as emotional flexibility. You know, in the most extreme, we have examples of that as well. But, you know, and again, it's there's a nature and a nurture component of it. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, it's funny. So this is the way I've felt about this. I'm actually prepping right now to interview Gabor Mate, who's like the trauma king. So, so I've been reading his book and then now I'm like, oh, wait, maybe I do have trauma. Um, but yeah. So in any case. Well, and it's interesting. That's, you know, similar to, I think in our pre-interview, we were talking about the evolution of biohacking. I think you're seeing an evolution of understanding what does get passed down, you know, because I think there are certain aspects of trauma that are encoded and that's clear from the science. I think even 10 years ago, you wouldn't have, I, you know, just for the listeners and yourself, you know, I have a Sam Harris slant. I really do need to see some level of evidence to believe things that, you know, at first blush seem, you know, almost unbelievably remarkable, but it's clear that those things do leave an imprint. And so 
I think that's why it does become important to be a good steward of those types of experiences. You know, the more we have resilience, the more we might not pass it down to the ones that we love, either through, you know, social contagion or, you know, this aspect of biology that we're only just beginning to understand. The idea of, you know, inherited trauma and yeah, like passing it down is really, really fascinating. So, okay. We took a hard left. I'm sorry. (laughs) On that note. So that's happiness. Fun. What is fun and how does it differ from happiness or how do they relate? So for me, I, you know, defined it with, well, one, it's grounded in psychology, but I, it's a really wide tent. And so anyone that understands the psychological sort of construct of valence, I describe fun as anything on the positive side of valence. And valence is pretty easy to understand. It's essentially anything that we find pleasurable that we want to continue to do that we're attracted to. And so anything on the negative side of valence are things that, you know, essentially burn us out, take energy, or put us in a mild state of discomfort, right? Things that sort of repel us that aren't fun. And so, you know, that as far as a clinical definition, that makes it really easy. Like, are you enjoying what you're doing and do you want to do more of it? Or are you not enjoying what you're doing and you don't want to do more of it? The problem with that latter aspect is sometimes we can trick ourselves fairly easily to believe that we're doing something that's kind of enjoyable. But then when you unpack it, you're like, actually, you know, I'm kind of mad that I spent my time, you know, spending an hour on Instagram or whatever it is. So, you know, there are these modern day things that are more problematic than we've ever seen before because, you know, behavioral scientists like myself have have tricked us, you know, with certain mechanisms that make us believe we're enjoying ourselves when we're really not. Yeah, or similar to that, and because you're talking earlier about the role of autonomy, and you talk in the book about how even in the modern workspace, there are jobs where people think they have autonomy, but they actually don't, like Uber and Lyft and things like that. So how much does that matter? Do you have to have the realization that it was a little bit of a lie or you're, or you were misled or you weren't actually having fun or do you still experience the negative psychological and health benefits even if you think the whole time you're having fun, like with social media? Yeah, I think, well, it's, it's two parts, right? I think we're often easily tricked and so they do become somewhat addictive. So the best way to look at it is, are you really just trying to displace discomfort? And so that mildly feels pleasurable. But when you think about it, it's really just that you're bored or, you know, there's something that you want to get your mind off of. So it's not really that you're enjoying yourself. It's really that you're just displacing that discomfort. And we, it's really easy for us to mix those two up, right? Because when we're out of pain, like, you know, which essentially that is psychological pain, right? Then we can trick ourselves to be like, oh, well, this is pleasurable. Is it or did it just get you out of pain? And so in some of the literature, we look at it as these constructs of either passive leisure or active leisure. Like, is it something that's actually filling you up, leading to betterment, you know, where you'd want to do it again? Another great litmus test is if I asked you a week from now, could you tell me what you were doing? Because oftentimes in those, you know, situations, you know, because if you haven't encoded any information in your brain because your subconscious has told you this isn't important or exciting or a teaching moment or something you want to remember, then it truly is a passive activity, right? And so, you know, as you read in the book, 
where that can become quite problematic if you've habituated that behavior is that if your brain is not encoding any new information, you'll look back like a lot of us did during the pandemic, right? When we really were in this state of boredom and mild discomfort and not remember what happened. That's why the pandemic to most of us, even though we perceive it as long, when we look back at it, our memory of it's like, you know, feels like 10 or 20 days, right? I mean, and so, you know, moving from passive leisure to active leisure is important for a whole host of reasons. But again, when we're in this passive leisure state, it tends to just sort of pass time. You know, we deem it not important and it's not, it's nothing that we're going to look back at and be proud of. Yeah, that was something that blew my mind that had never occurred to me. But you talk about how these like passive yielding memories, how, so like if you're, you know, doing your commute every day to work, how it's literally stored as one memory in your brain or like in the same place, unless something happens to make it different. Yeah, the way it was described to me by a neuroscientist that I think makes the most sense because, you know, whenever you don't have deep knowledge of a certain domain, right, you have to regurgitate the esoteric version. And so someone much smarter than me gave me this anecdote that I think makes it fairly easy to understand you know, we know that essentially our brains, at least the memory storage component is like a hard drive, right? And so what is more efficient, keeping a thousand copies of the same magazine, or essentially throwing out 999 and saying, here's the one magazine that I know I had a thousand copies of. And so that's how the brain works, right? It's like, I know this commute, I know that I've done this commute a thousand times, but I really only need to store one or two versions of this memory because it's not important. I just need to know how to do it. And so this is getting a little bit off topic from the research I did for the book, but I worked for a cognitive brain training company and learned a lot about neuroplasticity. And so one of the things to build cognitive reserve that we prescribe is simply just driving your commute, you know, in different ways, you know, or giving yourself access to people that have contrary, you know, in a psychological psychologically safe way, giving yourself access to people that have ideas that are contrary to you so that you start to think outside of these, you know, neural pathways that are well-developed in your brain. And we know that that builds neuroplasticity. So the same thing applies here. We know that novel experiences also add all of that cognitive reserve that can be very valuable as you age you know, when you need to access that memory that's sort of been preserved biologically because you've made use of it. That is so cool. I mean, it's pretty evident if you just think about it, like specific unique experiences that you had that were, quote, fun. You can usually remember like the entire night event from the beginning to the end. When I read that in the book, I started like thinking about it myself. And I was thinking about, you know, how often I've taken the same drive to the grocery store every day. And then I started getting a little bit like distressed about it. I was like, oh, I I can't really remember like all the different times. And why would you? You know, I'm you, I'm sure you've had other behavioral scientists on. I mean, heuristics are there for a reason, right? And th- and they can be helpful in a lot of contexts, but we also know that over time they become problematic because they make us continue to think more linear, you know, more and more. And so our ability to come up with innovative solutions to, you know, coalesce ideas that aren't necessarily meant to be bound together so that we can, you know, really think outside the box to use an old cliche, that stuff becomes important to sort of flex our creativity and the novelty in our lives in those ways so that we preserve that plasticity, 
you know, and the ability to think in a nonlinear fashion. I love it. Okay. So I have some more questions about fun itself, but before that, the pursuit of fun, because you talk about the role of pleasure and dopamine and anticipatory versus consummate pleasure and how with dopamine, what we are driven by is the actual pursuit of getting the thing we want rather than actually getting that, that pleasure hit. So with fun, is it about the pursuit of fun or the actual having the fun? There's levels to that, right? So first let's unpack, you know, what we've learned about dopamine. And I think people are talking about it more openly, but it was certainly like sort of interesting to me in context. And that is that we used to think of dopamine as the happy chemical, right? The thing that sort of gave us this sense of pleasure. And we now know that dopamine really is meant to be motivating, right? So we see the big releases of dopamine when we anticipate, you you already nodded to that, instead of when we're actually engaging in that activity. And so, again, most of this was looked at folks that were gamblers, you know, that were doing the the one-armed bandit slot machines, and they could see their brains light up before a jackpot would happen, Right. And then the fun sort of occurred if they won. And then this big, big letdown if they lost. Right. And so we don't need to go into all the history of that. But why it does become important is if we allow these kind of things that are fake fun, like social media, because essentially that's the same thing. Right. We're looking for that variable reward. You know, dopamine makes us excited. And then maybe the next meme is funny or maybe, you know, it's a horrible waste of time and, and, and we spin the wheel again. Right. So. The first is how do we game it? You know, if we know that we're attracted to things that are sort of exciting and fun, how can we use that in a way to create our fun habit in, in, in a way that supports our betterment, right? That's kind of the first level. The second is knowing that these neurochemicals can trick us. How can we transcend that and really enjoy ourselves in the moment? So it's sort of a move of using fun as a tool for contentment instead of excitement, and say, you know what, these people that I've surrounded myself with, I could be with them for a long, long time. Or this habit that I'm enjoying, excuse me, this hobby that I'm enjoying, you know, as you know, I bring up numerous studies, you know, with folks from various facets, you know, dancers and things of that nature that are able to sit with that, not necessarily because it excites them, but because they have such a strong connection with that thing that they just find fun in doing it. And so, you know, it's kind of a one-two punch. How can you use it initially to draw yourself to things that are going to improve you? And then how do you move past sort of the excitement level and just realize that the things that you're connected to so deeply are really where, you know, is a source of fun, you know, that's everlasting, right? Rather than being sort of episodic. So to provide some more clarity about what fun actually looks like. You have this play model in your book where you have four quadrants and you know th- there's four different types of experiences that we can have throughout the day. Could you tell listeners a little bit about that? I think it gives a nice practical picture of how people can do a quote fun audit like you say. Yeah. So the play model is a four quadrant model and the letters, you know, P L A Y P stands for pleasing, L stands for living, A stands for agonizing, and Y stands for yielding. And so if you're kind of trying to visualize this, the P and L are up in top and the A and Y are down below. And so 
pleasing activities are things that we can engage in all the time, right? For some of us, it's going to be certain work tasks, certainly going to be connections with others and pets. It could be engaging in a hobby that doesn't take a ton of energy, but it's the things that we can do all the time. And so one of the things, these activities often get undervalued, but we know that when we're engaged in this way and really have a connection to what we're doing, our mind wanders less. And so there's a whole host of science that suggests that too many of us, right, let our mind wander all the time. And the more that you do that, the less happy you generally are. Because one, you're not enjoying your day to day. And when you are, you know, mind wandering, quote unquote, and this work comes from Matthew Killingsworth and Dan Gilbert, for anyone that wants to look it up, you tend to be a lot less happy because you're just in your head and you're not really enjoying you know, the way you're spending your time. So you want to find activities that actually, you know, that you like enough that you're having fun. (laughs) The living quadrant is things that take a little bit more energy, but that we really like doing and that lead us to some sort of betterment, mastery, or connection to a spiritual practice. So that can be like a vigorous hike in nature. It can be, you know, a meditation practice, It can be, you know, that 10,000 hours towards mastering a skill that's really important to you. These aren't things that we can do all the time, but that integrated into our life really fills us up and, you know, becomes an important aspect of things that we should have integrated into our life. So the bottom two quadrants, yielding and agonizing, I'll start with agonizing. So agonizing are the things that we don't like to do that take a lot of energy And we all have those, right? Like to say that those aren't going to be a component of your life is essentially a facet of toxic positivity, right? They're going to be hard things we need to do. I think if there are too many, then oftentimes we can look at those activities in that quadrant and go, how could I either improve them or potentially outsource them? You know, low-hanging fruit for entrepreneurs a lot of times is like, ah, I'm just, you know, this is really wearing me out. Well, like how can we lighten that load then, right? And potentially free up some time where you can do things that you enjoy. But the most insidious, and we've already laid the groundwork for understanding why, is the yielding quadrant. Because when things don't take a lot of energy, but we don't really enjoy them, oftentimes we're tricked into thinking that we do enjoy them, especially if they're activities that are displacing us from, you know, simple displeasure like boredom or, you know, some low-level state of unease. You know, we'll just do random things like channel surf or, you know, play on social media or doom scroll. For some, it's even friendships of convenience where they're like, I don't know, I just do this every Sunday, right? And so all of these things that really wear us down slowly but surely over time can become insidious. But, you know, as adults, again, we tend to habituate our behavior. So a lot of times we'll do these things over and over again and not even realize how much time we're wasting. I mean, it's gotten so bad, right? That Both Android and iOS now have ways for you to see how much time you're spending on apps in any given week. And generally, that's a great place to start if you feel like you might be lying to yourself, like, "Ah, I think I'm okay. Really? How much time are you spending on Facebook and Instagram? You know, and a lot of times just that can be illuminating. And if not Facebook and Instagram, you know, your Gmail app, like, do you really want to be spending 32 hours a week in email? Like, is that a good use of your time? And once you identify that, then you know, you can potentially make better choices. Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. 
May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come... Definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Some questions about this model. So did you come up with this or is this a model in psychology? This I did come up with. It's based a lot on Lisa Feldman Barrett's work with emotion. So I definitely a tip of the hat to her, but the idea of pairing both challenge with valence, that was my idea. And I wanted to clarify that for listeners. So for listeners, and maybe we can put a picture in the show notes if that's not a copyright issue. No, you're fine. Okay, okay. I'm just like looking at it right now and it has like the copyright in the background. So the x-axis is the level of challenge. So on the left, it's easy, and then it goes up to hard, and then the y-axis is fun. So low is at the bottom, high is at the top. So like pleasing, what he talked about at the beginning, is the top left quadrant, so that's high fun, but low challenge. Living is high fun. It's at the top right, so it's high fun and high challenge. And then agonizing is the bottom right, so it's very challenging and not fun. And then yielding is the bottom left, so it's not very fun and also not very challenging. So question about when I interviewed, do you know Seth Stephen Davidowitz? He wrote a book called Don't Trust Your Gut. He's all about data. And he's, is he also a behavioral scientist? Maybe. But he had a chapter on happiness and he talked about a study, which I, I wasn't sure. I was reading your book and it might've been the same thing. He talked about the, the mappiness study. It was like an app and they asked people randomly, like a I don't know how many people, a lot of people, <laughs> randomly throughout the day, what are you doing and are you happy? And then they were able to figure out like what correlated to happiness or not. So I, I have a study because it's kind of the crux of, I mean, we're jumping into the middle, but I think it's a good, you know, pause point to give homage to when I was putting this book together where I was like, whoa, okay, I'm on to something. So there have been a lot of those time use studies, you know, the Matthew Killingsworth one might be the one that you're talking about because theirs is fairly famous, but 
there was another one done on the hedonic flexibility principle. This comes out of Stanford, Harvard, and, and MIT. And they're all using the same technology that Cheek sent me high, created to start doing his flow studies. The check-in is something that Cheek sent me high invented. And then so many of us have used it in our own research just because it, you know, it, it is a great way to access time use data. And you're doing it in real time, right? People tend to not be that great when you know you do these time audits at the end of a week, right? At the end, yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I digress. But with the hydonic flexibility principle, what they found was when people weren't having fun and you know, the one the folks that are really burnt out, they end their workday really looking for poor ways to escape that discomfort. And so whether that's passive leisure, whether that's things like, you know, drinking and drug use, poor, you know, just other poor uses of time that aren't very healthy and ways for your own betterment, that that's what happens and it becomes this vicious cycle, right? But what was sort of amazing from this study, because again, it was to look at, are we truly pleasure-seeking animals? Like if, you know, if you're having a good time, do you continue to look to have a good time? But what they found was, if you are the type of person that has good transition rituals between being productive and then leisure time, you're taking time off the table for yourself. Those are the people that show up the next day and are way more productive, you know, actually have the vigor and vitality to take on the hard challenges. So not only are they more productive, so producing more than the folks that think they're being, you know, they're working by essentially keeping themselves busy, but aren't enjoying their, their life. I think the, the, the second component of this study is even more fascinating. These are the ones that look for harder challenges because they, they feel like they're living a full life. They actually seek out new challenges, new ideas, new things to tackle, whether that is, you know, in their sort of leisure time, you know, like climbing Mount Everest or whatever it is, you know, for a lot of us, it's marathons, et cetera, et cetera, but also, you know, in their professional lives. So there's this real paradox, right? Like if, you know, it, it's either an upward spiral or a downward spiral, but so many of us, especially here in the U.S., I mean, anyone that's been on LinkedIn throughout, the, you know, throughout 2023, it's just study after study about how burnt out we are, how the U.S. is second to last with regards to providing leisure. And even in that case, the fact that we're only giving 10 days off per one year's worth of work, only 50% of people are even taking vacation when they're, when it's offered to them. I mean, it's clear that you know, not having fun and not engaging in leisure is leading to these really poor outcomes. And again, the paradox or, you know, the unfortunate thing is the people that do have these, you know, bumper rails on their schedule that, that are like, I'm going to work hard, but then I'm going to, you know, enjoy my time outside of work are the ones producing the, the best work and also the ones seeking out new challenges. So sorry, but that just, that, that study has 28,000 participants. So it's really, hard to not say like, you know, the rigor of that study, how powerful that message is. No, that really resonates with me. What's interesting, and it's really nice to hear because I'm, I mean, I'm sort of a workaholic. And the thing about it, though, is I like genuine, like I genuinely enjoy what I do. Like, it's just so fun. Like I say that all the time. So it's hard for me to not be working, but I'm actually very, very intense. So you talked about that transition time. I'm really, really intense with my schedule every day and that I basically get up and like just work all day. And, but I like, I love it. But then at every night I have like an, 
entire routine where I transition into my like wind down mode. And normally like while I'm dinner, well, I know this is like very specific, but um, while I'm eating dinner, I'm still like reading books and researching. But then at the very end, then I have my like me time. And that's where I just like read whatever I want to read, even if it doesn't relate to like longevity or science or shows. I used to feel a little bit bad about that because I was like, this is not being productive. But it sounds like that is productive in the long run. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. So it's funny because, you know, as any of us are developing our ideas, I think there's always this like evolution of wisdom where you have to believe in absolute. And then, you know, I pay homage to it in the book, right? The map and the territory, right? Like when you're first, you know, approaching an academic concept, you kind of learn the map, you do your literature review, you learn from the folks, you know, smarter than you then you start to understand the territory. And so that's all to say, like when I first was like, okay, these transition rituals are so important and leisure is important because I was thinking about it from a purely quantitative standpoint. I had a conversation with Noah Kagan from AppSumo and was sharing some of these ideas that had generally been well-received. And he was like, but in my 20s, I was, you know, grinding it out till 10, 11 p.m. every night, essentially working throughout the day, but I was having a great time. And so I took that to heart and kind of went back. And I think exactly what you described, you know, in, in line with what Noah described, as long as you're doing it by your own accord, because the difference for Noah was he was using his autonomy and he might call it all work, but, you know, it was time, you know, where they were all at a house you know, having a few beers and doing hackathon type stuff, like they could stop at any time. That was their choice, right? So yes, was it producing a work product potentially, but there was, it was not outcome focused. There wasn't a boss telling them what to do. And it sounds like the scenario that you shared is similar, right? Like I would point to the study I brought up in the book that, you know, in this loose definition of fun that we have, it's more fun to work through lunch if that's your choice than, actually, than being forced to take a lunch with your boss when that's not something you necessarily wanted to do or find enjoyable, right? And so I think, again, the key construct here is autonomy and are you drawn to the thing that you're doing? If it is, if everything that you're doing throughout your day, even though it moves you forward, you know, with regards to your vocation or how you make money, but it's fun and you could stop it at any time and it's not a form of escapism, right? Because and I'll, I'll table that, but go back to it, then I think you're fine, right? Like that is fun. And, and you have the choice to recharge the batteries in a way that makes sense to you. So I think, I think you're okay. You know, having that transition ritual, it's when one, and what I said that was, you know, that I would table, if it does become this form of escapism, right? You know, again, you see athletes that train so hard that ultimately they're depleting so much glycogen that, you know, the practice the next day, it might look like time spent, you know, towards mastery, but in reality, they're really, you know, driving themselves physiologically into the ground. You see the same thing with busy entrepreneurs, right? Like at some point, if you're not really enjoying yourself and taking time off the table, eventually you're going to burn out. And so you need to know that about yourself. And then also, are you just engaging in admin work to make yourself feel busy because that's essentially just another activity in the yielding quadrant, right? So now there are people looking at this. Dr. Cassie Holmes has an amazing book herself and her colleague, Colin West, who's now at the University of Toronto, they call it admin work, right? Just work that 
you're kind of doing because so much of your self-worth is derived by productivity that you're essentially answering emails that you don't need to be answering. And it's not driving anything forward. It's really just displacing the fact that, you know, you're so addicted to work that you're escaping that discomfort that can become problematic. But those are the two sort of things to look out for. If you're enjoying most of the time and you show up the next day, you know, with the same amount of energy that you did the day before, it's probably not problematic. So anyways, I'm just giving you creative license to keep you do you. (laughs) That's really interesting about the admin work. It's funny because one of my good friends, he hates admin work. And we, we had like a really long conversation the other night just about admin work because he was saying how much he doesn't like it. And I was saying how much I love it because it's kind of what you just said. It makes me feel productive, but it's really easy to do. So then I get to like pair it with like watching a movie. Now I'm just thinking about a lot of things. It's probably a problem that I I wouldn't want to just watch a movie because then I would have anxiety about not being productive. But then if I pair it with meaningless admin work, then I feel like I'm being productive and watching a movie. Activity bundling at its best, right? Okay, so is that activity bundling or is that not being mindful? Well, it's probably a little bit of both, to be honest. It depends if you needed to get it done. True. I do normally need to get it done. Yeah, so you're okay. I mean, you know, I talk about it in the context of physician work, right? Because that was, you know, my academic practicum was helping out physicians. And so there's twofold, right? I mean, certainly I think physicians need a lighter workload, but that's not feasible right now. And that might not be in your busy life, something that you could tone down, certainly something to be mindful of. Like, is this, you know, a good use of my time? Is there a certain amount of time that I do need to stop? But if not, then activity bundling can be a great way to sort of still enjoy yourself, but get through that type of admin work. So with physicians, you know, they call it pajama time, right? And it's insidious. And again, unfortunately, It's just, you know, now that electronic medical records are here, they do, you know, part of their job is to respond to patients and they generally do that after having dinner with their family. So, you know, it's one of those interesting things that, you know, like anything, you know, you need to hold both because both are true. Like, yes, it is a great way to make things that might not necessarily be fun, more enjoyable. So you're doing it right. The other is, are you working too hard to the extent that if, your whole day is work. You're not going to be able to show up the next day. And the problem is there is that this can happen slowly over time. So that's what we're seeing with physicians, right? Like, yeah, I can, you know, man through it. I can use grit to get through these next six months. But, you know, after two or three years, it slowly starts to kill you, right? And so with physicians in particular, because this is one where I have deeper knowledge, you, once you get to that state, you start to lose empathy for your patients. And we know there's a direct correlation between patient empathy and patient outcomes. So it's not just to protect the physician, right? It's also, you know, generally this has a ripple effect. And so I think that's, you know, I guess a cautionary tale because it sounds like you're fine. But, you know, ultimately, if you start to resent the work, then you, you do need to check in with yourself and go, can I, you know, potentially defer this admin work or delegate it to someone else, you know, that for entrepreneurs, that's often, you know, something that's harder to do than, than you think it would be. Cause you know, you know, the, the Tim Ferriss's of the world, right. have taught us how to have a four hour work week, but I have worked with so many entrepreneurs that like, why are you still doing that? You, you really don't find it enjoyable. Well, yeah, I don't do it. It's not going to get done right. Like, you know, and you find out it's social media posts or something like, really, you really think that's that impactful? Yeah. So 
So it's really funny. My friend was a doctor, so I didn't realize this was a, <laughs> it's like a thing then. And yes, I find, I find outsourcing. It's something that I wish I had been doing more of earlier. And I wish even now I had more confidence to do more of, because it's what you just said. It, you feel like if you don't do it, you feel like if you don't do it, then everything's just going to crash and burn, but that's probably not the case. And I also want to let listeners know, because we're talking about this role of, you know, autonomy and your daily decisions and your, and your work life. I have a question, but I know you have the answer. (laughs) So is that autonomy just possible as an entrepreneur or can people find autonomy in like a nine to five job where they have a boss and you have a whole section on this with tips and tricks, but is there hope for people? regardless of their work situation? Yeah, I, you know, it's really going to be dependent on the job. You know, I'll rightfully get constantly called out, you know, because some of these inherently are going to have privilege, right? You know, again, I, I point back to working with physicians that really don't have a ton of autonomy and still finding ways to instill it. But, you know, if you can't find a, a new job, you know, if you're really feeling burnt out by, you know, the one that you're in, how can you have a critical conversation with leadership and say, I want to understand what's, what the expectations are for this week. And I'm going to really do a great job and over communicate that so that I can in return, have some autonomy on how I go about the week. And more often than not, if you are forward with that, you know, and you have a conversation with, you know, your boss or your leader, generally, if you say like, look, I'm going to over-communicate all of this, especially if you're under, you know, sort of a micromanager, it usually relents and you can start to build in more autonomy. Then there's simple strategies, right? I talk about this, but simply just like taking back your break and going, I'm not going to work through lunch anymore if you do lack autonomy in your job. And I'm going to create that hour in a way that's meaningful to me, you know, whether that is a hobby, like reading a book or you know, connecting with a friend down the street. There was an amazing article. I always get the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times mixed up. So it was in one of those two. But it came out just a couple of weeks ago, maybe even put it in the show notes, because I thought it was a great kind of validation of these ideas that how many partners are now using their lunchtime to reconnect because so many of us parents don't have that time anymore, right? And so it's a beautiful way to sort of one, you know, re-energize your relationship, but two, just do something, you know, take this break from work that's more fun and then going back and, you know, really crushing the second half of your day. So where this becomes challenging is everyone's life is so unique, right? And so you kind of need to look at the toolbox and decide which tool is going to work for you given your situation. Well, again, I will refer listeners to your book because you provide a lot of very specific tips and tricks for you know, working with all this and getting more autonomy in your work. I have some last questions about the play model. So we we went on like all different paths from it, but the original question I had related to that study where they were asking people what they were doing and what made them happy. They found that the top two things, number one was sex and number two was going to theater actually like shows. So I'm pretty sure that is Matthew Killingsworth's study. And yeah, yeah, it's the one about mind wandering. Yeah, I give a tip of the hat to that for sure. Because if you recall, and maybe this is, I didn't mean to jump the gun 
I think what second to last was caring for children, right? Oh, was it? Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cause I definitely want to get to that topic. So, those two things, so like sex and seeing shows, would that be under in the living category? But like seeing a show, how is seeing a show high challenge? Cause you're still just sitting there. Oh, I mean, I, I just, I think I jumped the gun and I do, I do believe that connection with your partner, you know, intimate connection is in the living quadrant because it's certainly not something you can do all the time. Oh yeah, that would be challenging maybe. And I think so, but going to a show potentially, it, you know, is more of a pleasing activity, right? Because it doesn't, you know, it's pretty passive and it doesn't take a lot of energy. So. Okay. But they're still in the fun category, basically. Gotcha. And then, oh, I just have a really random question because you mentioned like climbing Mount Everest. So you went to Antarctica and you ran, you ran there? Yeah, they, Marathon Tours out of Boston has a, runs a marathon there. You know, I think it was every year and now they've done it every other year. And I'm sure it kind of slowed down during the pandemic. But yeah, at least every other year they run a, a marathon there. So for any environmentalist, it has a huge environmentalist component and money's donated to that. The race takes place between the service roads of the four countries that have laid flag there. So that race is so long ago. I definitely know it's Chile, us, and then two other countries. And so you run the marathon through those service roads that have already been established. You don't trample, you know, the pristine nature of Antarctica, but it was amazing. It really was like one of the first invitations to true awe and wonder, because I think Again, we've talked about the importance of encoding, you know, new memory. When you are invited to see something that you have absolutely no context to grab onto, it's almost like sensory overload, right? The ice is just so magnificent and sparkly and blue. And then I'd never been around, you know, I've been in nature preserves and things like that, but there's just so many penguins and so many big fish that just kind of come up to the surface to surprise you. Big fish? Yeah, like big fish, <laughs> you know. That you see? Yeah, we were kayaking around and this whale came up right next to us. And I was like, this seems, you know, I talk about peak experiences being, you know, a, a component of edge work. And that certainly was edge work for me because I'm like, can't this thing just, you know, take its tail and knock us out? And so we definitely swam away from it and it was just checking us out. But it was, it was just beyond words. How long were you there for? A week. You live on a boat. Oh, a boat. Okay. I was like trying to figure it out. I was like, where did you stay? Yeah. So you fly into, I think there's several ways to get in now, but I believe we took the most popular way and that you fly into Argentina and then you take a boat from Argentina to, to there. I think there's a couple other ways to get there. I don't believe unless you're part of a scientific expedition that you can fly and almost everyone gets there by boat. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering about that because I, I knew it was like really hard to get into Antarctica <laughs> as far as, as far as like the legality of it. So it's four countries that are like, have their little. Yeah. They have, they have military bases there and then the marathon takes place running along those roads. Wow. That's super cool. Okay. I'm inspired. Well, speaking of awe and wonder, so and this was something else that really resonated with me because it's something that I feel like I, it's like a nebulous concept that I feel like I appreciate in my life and have historically, but I didn't, I never really seen somebody talk about it more scientifically. So what is this concept of 
awe and wonder and the mystery and all of these different names that people give it? Yeah, I think for me, you know, certainly there's a whole science behind it. But for me, in the context of fun, is when we're engaged with an activity that generally fun invited us to, you know, again, maybe getting out in nature like that. You know, I was invited to Antarctica because I wanted to run on all seven continents. So that was kind of a whimsical goal and, you know, the fun of running, but invited me into that. But awe is when you sort of transcend whether something's enjoyable, like you're so awestruck, right? Like I was in the way that I described Antarctica, that it defines having to make sense of your environment. And you just feel this connection to something bigger than you. And when you can do that, when you can sort of stop your brain from having to understand why something is happening, and you do understand that you kind of fit into something that's much larger than yourself, then your problems become smaller because you realize like, oh, all of this, you know, these things that I was sort of worried about were by my own design. And there's something out there that's just so magnificent that if I invite myself to it and sort of allow my brain to slow down in that fashion so that I can just take it all in, that, you know, one, it's expansive, right? And then two, even if you're agnostic, you know, or spiritual, you sort of are, you just realize like how remarkable all of this is. And so, you know, there's a host of psychological benefits of knowing that you're connected to something. And again, you know, kind of making yourself smaller so that especially in individualistic cultures where all of our problems like seem so big, right? Even though, you know, a lot of them are man-made, you know, again, that lightens that load, but it also, you know, releases oxytocin that increases empathy. So once we, you know, are in those states, we just return better versions of ourselves. And then also when we're able to shut down, you know, quote unquote, meaning making or sense making, we, we can kind of quiet the mind. You know, a lot of anxiety lives in those perpetual loops, you know, where we're just trying to figure things out. And when you can relinquish that need, you know, even though it needs to come back, when you can relinquish that judgment state, that, that need to make sense of, you know, what's going around you, then it really does quiet the mind and it helps us build resilience. And so are these experiences things, because I know we talked about like the ultimate version of it, like going to space and the overview effect and the, and the astronauts going to Antarctica. Again, d- dripping in privilege again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess the question there though is, are these things that you have to specifically seek out and experiences that you curate or can it just happen? Well, I think quite the latter, right? So my only argument is that you do need to create opportunities for spontaneity to happen. And so, you know, there's all sorts of different avenues, right? Certainly it's accessible in nature. We know that it's certainly accessible through meditation practice. It certainly is accessible to those that feel a connection to spirituality. Again, if you quiet the mind and sort of get away from dogma, it's also accessible to people that feel a true connection to what they're doing. And so, you know, you know, whether that's ballet, whether that's tennis, you really can find, you know, that sense of awe and wonder, you know, through the connection of flow. So you, you know, initiate flow in that experience. And then once you start having to sort of make sense of that hobby or activity, you can find it there as well. And then it's certainly available through true connection, you know, through intimacy. There's a strong argument to be made that, you know, casual intimacy, it can't be found there because there's so 
much meaning making when you don't feel that connection to a partner, right? And that's definitely for, you know, a different type of expertise than I have. But I've read that literature and it, it seems that I think it's Stephen Cotter in Stealing Fire. He really does a great job of unpacking, you know, like how casual sex, you immediately try to figure out why you're in this situation. Do you even like this person, right? You're, but when you have a true connection with your partner and all of that, you, you already have, you know, you're immersed in that psychological safety, you can find that transcendence in those environments. And so, you know, I think all of that is to say that we know once you can get away you know, from these constant feedback and intellectual loops that go on your head and know that there's something outside of yourself that you just don't need to understand and that you're safe and it's magnificent and whatever that means. You know, I don't think any of us are really ever going to catch that tiger by the tail. And it's, it's that paradox, right? As soon as you don't have the need to catch that tiger by the tail anymore, you kind of just feel at peace wherever you find that peace. So... I'm just thinking now because I could see how from evolutionary perspective that that experience would happen with sex because it would be the the ultimate, you know, continuing the species. And so even animals might have that experience. But the second piece of awe and wonder related to just a life experience, is that also an evolutionary benefit having that experience? And I'm guessing animals probably do not have that experience. Yeah, that's a great question that I don't know that I'm qualified to answer. I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned is I'm, you know, in that area, I'm still kind of understanding that aspect of cognition because it's certainly like we're just getting, you know, to the neurological understanding of when we're able to shut those things off. And, you know, even like, because I'm sure you've had guests talk about alpha, beta, and theta and getting into those states and the value of those states. I know how to access them through fun, but that's a very pedestrian sort of entryway into understanding the science. So I want to be careful of not just embellishing something that I don't have a firm understanding of. Because I, I know the evolutionary standpoint of fun, the way we believe it. And again, you know, I confess this in the book, just like lightning, right? These are theories we don't, you know, we don't truly understand. But it's clear that pro-social behavior and storming and forming and norming with regards to testing boundaries with both your parents and your friends, you know, physical play so that we start to develop, you know, dexterity and things of that nature and just sort of understanding, you know, how the world works through, you know, this playful engagement very much proves that fun has some reasoning with regards to how it was developed from an evolutionary standpoint. To answer your question about why awe and wonder exist from an evolutionary standpoint, I'm not qualified to answer that. Something to something I will research for fun. There's two great books out by it that are both on my list. Which ones? Awe by one of the professors out of Cal. I think it's Dillner. And then I'll have to look them up for you. But yeah, I know that because I got bundled into that category. And so I know that there were two major releases out in January, both tackling awe as a concept. Oh, interesting. Around the same time. Okay. I'll have to, I'll have to look those up for sure. Well, something you talk about is the role of relishing these moments and it, but in particular, I'm really interested because I really believe in the power of gratitude. You give a nuanced perspective of that. So how does gratitude factor in? Is it the same thing as appreciating these experiences? If not, why? And how often should we be doing gratitude? Because I, I liked your, you had an interesting perspective on that. Yeah. 
it's clear that when gratitude, like anything, right, is overprescribed, it can lead to negative rumination. And so I think you need to decide what's a good cadence for you. For some folks, it will be every day. For others, it might be just every week or every month. And so you figure out what sort of makes sense for you. But it's clear that gratitude in the things that come our way, especially if we're the ones that are manifesting them, you know, which is what I suggest in the book. Once we realize that we have control over how we bias our life towards fun and then are grateful for that ability, it tends to be this upward spiral. And so relishing is a great way to be grateful for the opportunities of fun that are brought into our life. And so, so many of us do, you know, sort of ruminate, we'll unpack, you know, through introspection, you know, big heady things, which can be episodically important, but not enough of us use that time to, you know, spend time thinking about the fun things that we did do. And so there's a host of benefits there. One, we know that for whatever reason, and there probably was an evolutionary slant to this too, we don't prioritize thinking about good things, right? Because, you know, when we were cave people, we really did need to sort of ruminate on, you know, what are the threats in our environment and how do we make sure to keep ourselves safe? Well, the world's a lot safer now. And so we know that when we are able to use that type of time where we're being mindful of the things that happen in our life and really being grateful and relishing those activities, that one, we realize that there's an abundance of them and that two, we have more power than we thought to bring them into our lives. And so we'll tend to think about like, how can I do the next cool thing, right? So one, it extends the power of fun because it's really pleasurable to think about the cool things that we did, right? But then two, we can use those as opportunities to reintegrate them in our lives. Like oftentimes, if I'm thinking about a cool vacation that we had, it will be a nudge to talk to my wife about doing it again. Or if you have a photo book, right, which is a a great way to reminisce, like looking at a photo, you know what, I haven't really talked to Susan for a long time. Like, you know, this was such a cool memory. One, let me remind her of that. And then two, let me use that as a prompt to get back on her calendar so we can actually do that thing again. And this becomes really important because as fun as it doesn't sound to be premeditated about having fun, it really is just, you know, a key component of being able to make sure it exists in your life. As I looked at successful people over and over again, that was a, you know, a commonality almost across the board that they had to schedule this time into their calendar because oftentimes, you know, since we have become slaves to our calendar, that if it's not on there, it's so easy to just sort of you know, push it on to the next, you know, next week, next month, next year until, you know, 10 years go by and you're like, wow, what happened? Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you 
you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase Asana, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. The chapter on reminiscing and creating your fun file and all of this stuff really resonated with me because I am all about the scrapbooking. Like, <laughs> like I am a scrapbooker, which maybe speaks to my, um, my appreciation of fun. But I mean, I think that's actually like the actual physical scrapbooking, especially today, because it's so physical, like, cause we're so in social media and you do provide a lot of really cool resources for kind of like digital versions of scrapbooks. But I think it's kind of cool, like having like an actual physical picture, like printing out pictures at Target, like you can actually still do that. But I never really thought about the, like why I was doing it. And it is because I just love reminiscing and remembering these, these fun times. They really can keep giving. Yeah. And it provides an anchor, right? I think, you know, a digital assets, one thing, but especially if your scrapbook has like, you know, tangible things that you can kind of feel, you know, or song lyrics or anything that invokes, you know, the information that you indexed in your brain, oftentimes that can reinvigorate, you know, a much stronger response and really bring you back into the moment instead of, well, one, it's less distraction, right? Because it's something that was curated by you, like certainly at a very low level, you could do that through social media, but the whole thing has been designed to sort of steal your attention for the next, you know, next shiny nickel, right? And so being able to sit down with a curation of your own design that has tangible anchors that could potentially take you back to that moment is so much more powerful than relying on social media, you know, for that task. Actually, growing up, something I would often give people for presents is I would make them like mini scrapbooks, which took a lot of time. I got inspired because a friend did it for me. And I was like, this is the coolest present I've ever received. So yes. Well, and I've kept, so I've had various friends throughout the years, both intimate relationships and friendships that have had those. And I keep them all to my wife's chagrin, but she's really cool. And so like understands why. And not because like I'm holding on to those memories, but because, you know, if your life was well lived, why not go back and and hold those in high regard, right? Your life is meant to be this amazing mosaic tapestry. And so those things really remind you that like, you know, it allows you to hold on to those without kind of feeling like you're missing out on something. And so I think, you know, those become, those are really undervalued assets. And that's really cool that you do that. And especially give that gift to other people that likely wouldn't do it because they're, you know, maybe they're not as creative. Again, there are these inherent traits that, are our superpowers that we can share with others, right? And so I imagine that's one of yours. I wonder if this is a website already. It probably is. Because I know there's like online websites where you can make scrapbooks yourself, but I wonder if there's one where you can upload and they will make it all. There probably is. Yeah, there is one. Like for gifts for people. Yeah, it's in the book. It's not coming to mind, but I found one and I, I put it in the book. Okay, awesome. There's one that I, I have used... For myself, but I wonder if there's one where you just completely outsource it. Yeah, I, th- I think I think you essentially just upload the photos. 
Yeah. And I think actually I could look it up real quick, but I think you can send it your social feeds and then it actually might even, you know, help you get started. That's cool. One thing I do think is kind of cool about Instagram, at least for me, is it is sort of like having a archive of your life, <laughs> like that you can look back through, which was not something that we had before, at least not that we were just doing daily and capturing. But th- okay, so this is a huge question I have, and you talk about it in the book, because I'm all about capturing the moment and getting the picture and saving the memories. And it's kind of a tension though that I have when I'm going on an like on a vacation or a nice dinner or having experience, the need or the desire to, you know, document and like <laughs> take pictures. And now it is for social media, but I've been doing this forever. Like even like what growing up when we go on trips, I'd be like, we have to document everything. So how do you have a healthy relationship between staying in the moment and also wanting to, you know take pictures and stuff like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's the balance, right? But the litmus test there is it taking away from you really being in the moment of something wonderful. And so the example I bring up in the book is I took my parents to the French laundry, which for me is, you know, so expensive, but they're, they love fine dining. And, you know, it's one of those top 10 restaurants, you know, that I think everyone wants to check off the list. And while I was there, there were people that literally weren't enjoying their food. They would just take, you know, photo after photo. And here's this amazing experience where you're really taking yourself out of the moment. And so many of us do that with our children as well, right? Like we kind of have to go back and look through the photos and then we kind of piecemeal back what the memory might have been. And so I think, you know, it's the extreme is the problem, right? Like, obviously, if you do something amazing, like a trip to Antarctica, you're going to want to take photos that brings you back there. But then maybe just time block time where you're not going to have your camera out, you know, so that you have pictures that will take you back to that experience, but that you actually have that rich encoded memory where you haven't, you know, jeopardized that potentially by being mindful of your phone and not the actual experience. The Where I find it really interesting, and again, maybe this is an age-appropriate thing that's not necessarily rooted in, in science, but how many kids watch concerts through their phone, you know, I find amazing, especially because I find music such an, an immersive experience. And I'll just, you know, really be in the moment. And then I'll take a mental picture and realize, like, you know, six out of the 10 people around me aren't watching the actual artists. They're watching the artists through their phone. And so that's going to be their sole experience, not the actual experience itself, but the fact that they watched it once through their phone and then as many other times as they want through their phone. And so, you know, again, I don't intimately know the pros and cons of the science there. What I will suggest is that you're certainly not in that experience. You're in this sort of weird virtual version of it. Speaking of biohacking, maybe the future, maybe the solution is we just get something integrated into our eyes and then our eyes are the cameras and then we can just enjoy it and it's recording at the same time. (laughs) I wonder if there's anyone doing research. So I actually have found it valuable when the artists take your phone from you. So the first time that happened to me was seeing the white stripes and, you know, you essentially had to, they had this great you know, way of storing your phones, you know, they had all these lockers set up. So it was quite elaborate. 
And then you got him back after the show, but no one was allowed to have the phone. And I felt like that collective effervescence that you get when you really do feel a connection to all the people around you was much stronger in that environment than say, you know, a concert where everyone was kind of not even paying attention to the people next to you. You know, it's often like, oh, excuse me, because they're paying attention, you know, to their screen and getting the perfect shot than, than the folks that are actually experiencing this amazing show with them. So this is more conjecture and just my opinion, you know, than what's right or wrong, but it's an interesting evolution. And I think one that's not going away to your point. So hopefully we can just get better at it so that people can, you know, have their media product and still enjoy the experience. I think you're spot on. Hopefully we're on the, on the way to that. Three thoughts to that. One, I think maybe that might, well, I don't know, but it may, be, it may factor in a little bit into why going to theater was found to be so fun because that really is the one experience today where you're going to a show and like at live theater, I mean, some people will like sneaky record, but most people like do not have their phones out, which I think really makes that experience, you know, much more immersive and speaks to that too. I know a lot of people at their weddings now will do like a no phones thing. Which I think is smart too. I meant kind of cool. Yeah. It's funny you say that. So I went to my first wedding. It was right before the pandemic in Tulum and the couple was, you know, really into mindfulness. So they asked that and it, it was really interesting to see the mild discomfort, you know what? And even in myself, cause it was like, we love these folks. It's in Tulum, this amazing, like kind of quasi spiritual setting. And I wanted to capture it. And they're like, look, we have a professional photographer that's going to take way better pictures than you ever will. And there's still that selfishness, right? Of like, yeah, but I want it on my phone, you know? And so because I like this kind of, you know, work, I identified it quickly, you know, in myself, like, yeah, this is super selfish. They're going to have way better pictures, you know, and then we can all share them. And, but it was also interesting as a geeky scientist to look around me and see the discomfort in people. And, and these are like a, a tight group of friends that all love each other. And like this discomfort and like, wait, I can't take pictures of you. And I'm at the, that's their wishes, right? It's their wedding. And yet we were still all like, oh, that just tells you the power of these devices, right? So what's really interesting is, so the way I've tackled it for like going to dinners for me, I have this experience very similar to what you just described, where if I go to a dinner, I have this like anxiety, I'll have this like border, like below the surface anxiety until I get like the picture. So I know like I've documented it and then I'm good. (laughs) And so maybe I need to work on like that actual you know, discomfort with needing the picture. But the system that works really well for me is that right at the beginning, like I get the boomerang of the drinks, I get like the picture with the family or the friends, and then I put the phone away. And then I'm like at peace. Yeah. And I, I, that that's what I described in the book with the experience at French Laundry, right? I didn't bring my phone for, you know, reasons that we've already described, but I did have a culinary professor there that was friends with my parents I'm like, this is her jam, right? And so she did that and then she put it away and then she was just amazing to watch her eat because I don't have that gastronomy gene. And so, you know, for me, it was, I would have been happy eating a hamburger, to be honest with you. So to watch people that really love food, I was almost, you know, again, that's the sort of mirror neurons at work, right? Like watching them 
just enjoy every morsel was so satisfying for me. But I would have lost that too if I was on the you know phone or like, hey, take a picture, let's all get together. Like, you know, it was so I think there are gonna be times like that. You know, again, you know, if you're on a girls trip or a boys trip and you want to over document it, you know, because it's already sort of high arousal and there's nothing to really be mindful of, like that's fine. But if you're doing something that's meant to be an immersive experience where you're really gonna get the most enjoyment out of it by encoding as much rich information as you can, then why would you want that information to sort of be condensed in a three by three digital monitor when, you know, you have the whole breadth of experience around you? Yeah, exactly. So it's time hop and it's my social book. So time hop lets you curate posts from social media and redistributes them. So it's kind of a better way of that, you know, the year functionality in Facebook that kind of you know, kicks back maybe memories that you don't want to remember. <laughs> yeah. And then my social book does exactly what we discussed. It allows you to transform social media content into a tangible book. Very cool. Okay. So we will put links to that in the show notes. And then um, one big topic we haven't touched on yet. Well, we touched on, but we haven't talked about. So <laughs> I don't think I'll ever, I mean, I don't, anticipate having kids. I don't think that's going to happen. But one of the main, I don't know if it's the primary reason, but I just feel like I, and this might come off as like really selfish. I just don't know if I could do justice to both myself and raise a human being. I feel like I would lose a lot of time <laughs> and fun, like my experience of my life. Because if I was a parent, I would not, I just feel like I'm coming off as very selfish. If, if I was a parent, I would like want to be like the best parent ever. And like that would become my entire life, which maybe is what you talk a little bit about with child-centric parents. But what have the studies found on parents and both like their free time, their experience of fun? How does that affect things? Yeah. So it's clear that you are probably making a choice that's going to work for you. The science backs up the fact that people without children tend to, over time, have a lot more fun. And Dan Gilbert is the one that's done some of the research in this area. And I am going to paraphrase him. I quote him in the book, but you know, he essentially says that parents say that kids are fun because essentially they suck all the other joys you had previous to kids out of your life. So they're there. So I think, you know, one, if, and you're seeing this movement now too, right? It's another interesting thing that's been validated by the book. There's like this growing consortium of people that aren't having kids. I mean, and I don't know how much we want to unpack here. You know, there's obviously this political stance whenever you make that assertion you really get this backlash. You know, the articles that I've read, again, because this is this emerging sort of agreement, you know, there are a lot of people that believe that procreation is the only reason that we're here on earth, right? So you'll get this, like, how, you know, if that's the only reason, then somehow you're, you know, not living a dutiful life. And that's just, I don't think we need more people, right? It's clear we're, <laughs> we're coming close to entropy. So, you know, the more people that don't want to have kids, probably the better for humankind, right? Again, I'll get off my soapbox there. But to answer your question, parents definitely can have a ton of fun. And I love my kids. I'm glad that we had them. But by raw empirical standing, it's clear that, yeah, that you preserve your autonomy if you don't have kids. Is that answer your question? Yeah. Well, 
No, it's so it's so interesting because I mean, I think it does speak to the zeitgeist, even like me approaching the question when I was talking about my desire to not have kids. I feel like just saying that is like a bad thing. I know, you know, and, and, and answering your question, even though it's completely objective data, because I know because I've seen it, you know, again, it's like, you know, whether it's the Puritan Protestant work ethic social norm or this social norm that I, you know, I want you to have kids too. I love, I don't, I don't think I put it in the book. It's in one of my blog posts and maybe I'll share it with you so you can put it in the show notes, but it's this amazing Ben Stiller movie and ad rock from the beastie boys is one of the actors. And he's, he just has this new kid and then he quips. Right. And it's, it's so perfect. He's like, Every before you have kids, all of these parents tell you how great it's going to be, and then the second this kid comes out, they're like, "Oh, don't worry, it, it will get better eventually." And then they just keep saying that, you know. And like, I think there's some truth, and you know, we all know how hard it is, and yet we, you know, want to elevate that sort of status as a parent because you don't want the dissonance of believing you made a poor decision, right? And so your life fundamentally changes. And, you know, if you're an honorable person, you're going to live up to that expectation. And so, you know, there's no turning back. You have to figure out what fun and joy means to you. But if you want to make a choice that you don't feel like you're going to regret, then the data is on your side that, you know, you are going to potentially have more a more broad breadth of options for fun than you would have if you were a parent because one you have more resources and two you have more free time that's just a fact i like that answer <laughs> i'll be really curious to see the evolution of research especially like you were just saying because you're saying there's more research on this now than there has been well and i think i mean you you know gave me an, one of the best pre-interview guides I've ever had. So thank you for that. But, you know, one of the questions you said be prepared for was, you know, the the modern neurotocracy. And this idea comes from David Lancey. And it is that for the first time ever, there's a few things going on that we've eventually we've essentially put kids in a spot that they never have been before. You know, in previous eras, this concept of benign neglect has always sort of been the social norm for parenting, right? We, like me and my brother, were allowed to go bike outside and go to the park by ourselves, I think, at the second grade. Not only that, but people were having kids much younger, right? The social dynamic was just different. And so grandparents could help lighten the burden of child rearing. Well, now we're all having kids much later, and our parents are living much longer. So we're now in what is called the sandwich generation, right? So our autonomy is even less when we, when we have kids because we're having to take care of these kids. And we're also now having to take care of our parents, which we didn't have to before, but also they can't help us take care of our kids. So, you know, there's all of these social headwinds that are coming at us that are making parenting more complex than it ever has been. And yet we don't really bring that to light because of whatever reason. Right. And so, and then especially we, I mean, just looking at the data with regards to parity and domestic partnerships, men were starting to make headway before the pandemic. But if you believe the data, the pandemic kind of blew that up. Men just weren't really that 
for whatever reason, weren't being as helpful and domestic duties, you know, helping kids sort of reestablish. And that, that walked back a lot of the progress that was made. And so, you know, recent time use surveys have shown that unfortunately, again, you know, domestic wives, or excuse me, wives and domestic partnerships are some of the most time poor individuals because that, you know, that's an, now I'm stumbling with my words, but that's just an unfortunate reality. You know, they have some the least domain over their time versus any other sort of segment, you know, within social demographics. And I wonder what the effect would be. I have not interviewed this person, but have you heard of the Sparkotypes? I have not. I, I really want to interview the guy. He did he did a massive study and collected data and came up with basically seven different sparkotypes, but they're basically the thing that you do in life that gives you pleasure or no, that gives you purpose and meaning. They're different things for different people. And some things are like give people purpose and some people they're draining. So my top two for purpose was performer and maven. So like seeker of knowledge and performing, which is crazy because the show is kind of like a performative version of seeking knowledge, which I thought was really a little bit eerie. But my most draining one Seems to fit you like a glove, right? I know. I know. It was crazy. I was like, oh, this is spot on. My least, like the one that was hardest for me that would be the most draining for me was nurturer. So like apparently I am not a nurturer, which is basically like being a parent. So I wonder if people who are nurturer is like their number one thing, like that's what gives them purpose. If they would have more fun as a parent compared to me, where it sounds like it's it would just be the most draining thing for me. Yeah. And I think that's a good entry point into what I highlighted in the chapter. This work comes out of the University of Toronto, but that parents that are child-centric, that have won the psychological safety and the resources to be able to manage child rearing in a way that doesn't create a lot of friction within the family unit. Because again, we're talking about multiple headwinds. I hope anyone that's listened to the last 10 minutes, you know, knows that we're kind of brushing over an immense amount of complexity over the last 50 years with regards to parenthood, and especially that being pretty specific to Western cultures. All that said, it's still true, right? You can't skirt the data. But the parents that have been able to transcend, you know, some of those challenges are the ones that really do find enjoyment in watching their children flourish. And so, you know, if you are child-centric, your whole sort of universe revolves around supporting this child in a healthy way, not helicopter parents or anything, but just like, hey, I've had these kids for the next, you know, 18 years plus, that's going to be where I derive the way that I make an impact and the way that I derive enjoyment, then those folks really do thrive. And so, you know, I don't know much about Spark, but it does sound like you know, if you have a component of nurturing that makes you feel good, like you certainly, you know, it sounds like that would apply. But, you know, the science around child-centric parents certainly makes a case that if you are able to shift to that mindset where like, okay, this is our job right now and I'm going to go all in on it, it really does lead to happier times. The nuance about it would be that friends... You guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. 
Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines, one of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Because I think if I were a parent, I would adopt that, but it's not what I would want to be doing. Well, clearly it would be what I want to be doing because I'm making that decision to be that way. I guess it's it's a, a higher value for me. So I'd want to be like that, but it in life, I maybe it goes back to the autonomy thing. Like I feel like I might lose my autonomy because I wouldn't be doing what I would really want to be doing with my life. And again, now I feel like I have to make caveats about I feel like I'm not trying to be selfish, but um, it would just be draining for me is, is the point to engage in. But I don't think enough people play that forward, you know, and then some people get stuck in the what if. And so you're sort of being really mindful of what it is you want. And I think, you know, you're going to have the naysayers that say, well, but what, you know, at 45, it might be harder to make that choice. I mean, you you know, if you do feel like you made a mistake, adoption's still an option and things of that nature. So there's some complexity. There's biology involved, right? There's social norms involved. There's socioeconomic things involved because, again, you know, what decision you make could be dependent on what sort of resources are available. So there's so many things that go into that decision. I think what is clear is that the folks that do make a firm decision and are really mindful about it, which it sounds like you are, tend to not regret it at all and live really rich, experience-filled lives. Because again, that just becomes accessible when you have more autonomy and more resources. Because we know, I think by the latest, you know, the last measure, the standard child costs two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollars per child through their lifetime, right? And that's kind of like, you know that's the average. So I'm sure for some people it's more and some people it's less, but you know, that's a lot of money you could use, you know, to enable yourself to do other things. Right. It's so interesting to hear you say that. So whenever I meet particularly women who are, you know, in their forties, fifties, who are like career women who don't have kids, I always ask them like, how do you feel about this decision? And it's interesting because I feel like the naysayers are all people typically who do have kids and say that, you know, it's something that you will have wanted. But typically when I talk to women, like career women who are, you know, chose not to have kids, they're usually like all about it. <laughs> they're like enjoying, <laughs> they usually tell me they don't regret that decision. So all I think to finish on this, all I will say is I am glad to hear that there are groups of people cohorting 
that are like-minded individuals so that people that do make this personal choice don't feel the weight of all the naysayers, you know, coming at them, that they have, you know, dissent on both sides and that they can make an appropriate decision based on, you know, real life facts rather than just conjecture from someone that wants to apply their ideal, you know, upon them. And so it sounds like you're in a good space. Awesome. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. I'm taking up so much of your time. Can we touch on one more big topic? Absolutely. It's actually the topic, and it's also a little bit controversial like this topic, but it's the topic you end on. And what I love about this topic is you say in the book that you wanted to dedicate more time to it, but the, <laughs> the I, I feel like the the editors are, they weren't really down with this having a, a larger part of the book, like its own chapter. So what are your thoughts on death and fun? And it's funny you say that because like the critical reviews of the book already are like, you know, because it is pretty rich in science. And they're like, man, this guy, you know, I really wanted just a whimsical book that would make me feel good. And because I have to explain, you know, every topic, like I think the folks that don't have a, a slant towards wanting to know the science, you know, this would have, I think the editors made the right choice is what I'm saying. Because It's so funny. I loved it though. I was like, yes, I'm all about this. no. I mean, you know, the big wake up call for me when I knew I wanted to write the book was the death of my brother. And it gave me this intimate relationship with time. And so it's clear that near death experiences or big changes that seem like deaths, like a divorce, right? Or maybe like losing your dream job, you know, things where you really know that there's a finality to the, you know, things that you might have taken for granted become important if you can use them as vehicles to realize. I should be really deliberate about how I spend the rest of my time. And so, you know, there's this interesting concept that I bring up in that chapter that I found fascinating. I imagine you would too. I'm just now going down the rabbit hole, but this idea of terror management theory, which basically suggests that we're wired not to think about our end. You know, if you look at every biological system, including our cognition, they're all meant to keep us alive. And so anything that poses a risk, even just us thinking about our end, becomes problematic and uncomfortable because as a biological system, everything in our being wants us to stay alive forever, right? Even though that's just not plausible. And so the idea, you know, the psychological concept of this is that we sort of have this predisposition not to believe that our life will ever come to an end. But if we're able to do that, right, if we're able to understand, like, okay, this time on earth that I have is finite, then all of a sudden we can make decisions leading up to that end point that really do fulfill us. And we can start to figure out what are the milestones that we need to accomplish those goals. And then we can walk backwards from there. And so there's a whole host of different interventions to become really mindful of this. But I think one of the best ones is, you know, some sort of memento mori, which is essentially just an artifact that reminds you that, hey, you know, you really should live today for today because tomorrow is not promised. And so, you know, I love data visualization. So just looking at, you know, maybe a chart that shows you your life in weeks, you know, and going, oh, my goodness, like, you know, half of those those boxes are now filled will allow you to have better motivation to make, you know, the choices in real time of how you don't want to put off these big things that you want to happen too far into the future. Because again, the future 
is going to come up pretty quickly. I'm so fascinated by this. First of all, just on a personal level, I've always been, I don't know if I'm like morbid. I've always had an appreciation of, I've always been fascinated by the concept of death and would have like skull collections. And my favorite thing in Paris was like going in the catacombs and have you been there to Paris and the catacombs? I haven't been to the catacombs yet. I have been to Paris. That was probably like, if you want a moment of confronting death, it's a very weird experience because you go down and just underneath Paris, there's just miles and miles of tunnels and it's just skulls like making the walls. And some of it is like in like artwork and like designs. It's weird because I had this moment of, it was my first, probably my first time seeing a skull and I saw like thousands and thousands of them. And so it was really weird to think, oh, these were all people. Like it's a very, very weird experience. But I do think there is some value to that. It's also interesting, though, like the fear of death, because you, you talk about in the book about how our relationship with death relates to life satisfaction. And you talk about a study where people who were more comfortable with death were higher on the self-actualization scale. I just wonder what that is. Like, so for me personally, it's interesting. My sister has a really intense fear of death that she had to like deal with different therapy measures. I don't really have a fear of death, but I, I have an intense fear. I, I don't know if it's a fear of aging, but like my whole show and <laughs> everything I do is kind of about the science of longevity and anti-aging. So I'm very uncomfortable with the concept of aging, but I actually don't have a death fear. So are, are those two things different? Like the fear of aging versus death? I'm not sure. I don't know exactly, you know, in a non-clinical setting, how to unpack that. I think in the literature, it's it's okay to be fearful, but it's not acknowledging that it will happen, right, is what becomes problematic. Because then you think that you have all the time in the world to essentially, you know, do whatever you want. And that tends to pin you in desires of the self. And so what was found in this research is that if you understand that, again, your time on earth is, you know, that you have a certain amount of time to make an impact, then you can sort of move along that evolutionary track quicker, right? Because you're not just always worried about your own demise. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess it has two benefits to it, outward and inward. Like the the inward would be, like you just said, like appreciating well, appreciating the the moments of your life and not having that crux of having that over, you know, that fear that you have to deal with and evolve beyond. And then also just appreciating, like going back to like the memories and reminiscing and, you know, the benefits of that are are all there with that. I found it really interesting. So you, you keep people who have passed away, was it you keep people who have passed away in your email list or something so that you see their names? My Christmas list. Yeah. I'm at- I mean, it's just another sort of, you know, behavioral science nudge, right, to make sure that I don't forget about them. And so I think, you know, it's a fairly small list, but, you know, each one of them, I kind of just, you know, think of them in my thoughts, especially because that's a great time to do that in the holidays. Think joyful thoughts, right? And sort of, because I feel like, you know, that's a way to sort of keep them in my heart and, you know, not just, oh, okay, they're not here anymore. Let me take them off the list. Just didn't seem right. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, maybe to end on a a lighter note, one other last thing that you end on is the role of like activism and 
how that relates to fun and like community and, you know, making change in the world. So I will definitely refer listeners to your book for that. What I really love is that you talk about the science and the importance of kindness, which I just think is so important. So when you had a whole section on that, I was, I was just like really happy because <laughs> I just think it's so, so important. And you talk about how like kindness and fun can, can go together. Yeah. And I think that's like, you know, to your point to end on a brighter note, I think that's, you know, again, going back to the Donic flexibility principle, once you start to really enjoy yourself, you tend to want to give back to others. And, and then it's, it's renewing, right? When you have fun through the act of kindness, because there's certainly like ways to have mischievous fun that damages other people, you know, things like pranks and stuff like that. But once you find this like communal source where you're not just lifting up yourself, but you're lifting up others, it really does become infectious. So again, you know, Paul Zach's work, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, you know, all the research he's done on oxytocin, but then just, you know, empathy and the fact that once we start to find our joy in the act of service, whatever that looks like for you, you know, then that connection is that, that well never runs dry. And so then you can just kind of perpetually have fun, not just for yourself, but for, you know, in this route of uplifting others. And so it really does become infectious and something that is really sustaining rather than, you know, some of these things that are more selfish pleasures that really, you know, can be useful tools at time, but are also very episodic and can lead to, you know, interesting outcomes if, if done for the sake of escapism or whatever it is. Yeah. I love it so much. And actually like, I love the last sentence of the book, you just said, it's chaos, be kind, have fun. And I thought that was just a wonderful way to, I mean, (laughs) summarize it all up just very simply though, while touching on, you know, the really important parts there. So thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing. Like I said, in the very, very beginning a, a while ago now, I just feel like there's so few people actually, you know, exploring this topic and the importance of it and the science of it and making it so accessible to everybody. And I, that's something about your book. Cause I read a lot of health and wellness books and I, I do, I love reading all the books and I do enjoy reading them, but it's really fun to read your book because you can, <laughs> cause you get really excited about all the fun that you can have and it's very empowering and uplifting. And, and like I said, you mentioned a lot of really cool historical characters that are that exhibited ways of having fun that are super cool and then stories from your own life. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I'm, I'm very, very grateful for it. Uh, thank you. I'm really <laughs> humbled by your words, but I uh, put a big smile on my face. So thank you so much. The last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's a topic that we talked about in this book, or sorry, in this interview. So I just realized more and more each day how important it is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful for the opportunity to spread this message for sure. I'm grateful for emerging out of the pandemic with you know two healthy kids and a healthy wife. And I'm happy to have you know this second sort of semester of my life be a blank canvas to be able to serve others in a way that's going to spread joy and delight. I mean, I'm, I'm really just in a state of gratitude lately, which is so sorry that it's so expansive and broad of an answer, but I, yeah, I couldn't, I've just been really feeling the love lately. So thanks for the oppor- the prompt to share that. I love it so much. And that's the way I feel 
a lot too. Like, I'm just so grateful. Like there's just so many amazing things to be grateful for. And maybe it does go back a little bit to what we were talking about at the very beginning with the autonomy, because when you feel like you have the ability to do what you want to be doing in the world, to have, you know, to affect the world, that just to me is so satisfying. And I'm just so, I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And it sounds like that's, you know, how you experience life as well. Are you writing another book? No, I keep getting asked that question. I think, you know, so in the book tour, when I got to sit down with all the folks from my hometown, I was asked the same question. And you know what I picked up on while on the book tour is this angst of, you know how, like, what was it, maybe eight, 10 years ago, Simon Sinek sold us all on us having to know our why. And I think so many people kind of prescribed to that, but were asking that in alignment with the people that they were serving, you know, again, going, looking at that construct of not having autonomy and not enough people have been asking themselves, what are they giving away, you know, in in that pursuit? And there are a lot of people in pain, you know, they're, they're essentially working for other folks without an honest exchange of equity or parity with regards to how much they're giving away. I mean, going back to, you gave it a nod and we didn't dig into it, but you know, like how insidious the gig economy is, right? How many of these big corporations are essentially getting people to work more and they, you know, they think that they're being more productive, but essentially they're, you know, the value exchange from that transaction is getting extracted in a way that doesn't serve them. And I think you're seeing that across the board. So understanding, you know, how we can realign the balance so that, you know, when people are exchanging time for money, it's in a more equitable way. And people understand that preserving some time for fun and leisure as is, is as important as we protected sleep after kind of, you know, falling victim to, you know, giving trophies out for sleep deprivation in the 90s. That's my soapbox. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so I think, I think that's the awakening we're seeing right now. And so doing it in that context of, you know, because I think, for people that are open to the message, you know, it resonates like, you know, what you shared and and I'm grateful to hear, but so many people are like, ah, this isn't for me. I just need to work a little bit more. I think maybe a more compelling case of like, are you sure that what you're giving away, you know, this time for other people that's, you know, taking time away from you getting to know your friends and your family and your loved ones, or maybe pursuits that are more meaningful to you or things that you just wanted to outside of work, like, can we unpack that, you know, and how important that is to know that up front? So I share that idea and like multiple people stood up and were like, I'm here for the revolution. So maybe that's the next topic. Oh, awesome. Oh, so when you first started saying that, I didn't know if you were going the route of saying that writing a book took a lot of time <laughs> where you felt like you didn't have your autonomy anymore, but I'm glad it was not that direction. It was... <laughs> no, no, the book was a labor of love. It was, you know, yeah, it was certainly something in the living quadrant for me that I fit in the nooks and crannies. But I just, I think, a light, you know, illuminating the fact that people are asking that question, that most of us, you know, we know our purpose, we know our passion, we know what we're aligned to, but our lives have become so habituated that we don't completely understand what we're giving away when we keep ourselves too busy. You know, maybe just attacking the same argument from a different angle. It certainly seems like people need a richer understanding of how much damage is being done to them. You know, it was similar to sleep, like, you know, because it's so insidious, right? Like you can go 
and live an okay life with sleep deprivation for maybe three or six months, and then you just fall off a cliff. And that's what's happening now, right? People aren't enjoying the way they're spending their time, but I think it's a longer road, right? It's a, it's the lagging indicator is, is stretched out compared to sleep deprivation. And then, so you wake up, you know, one or two years later and you're like, I don't know why I'm burnt out when it's right there in front of you. So maybe making a more, you know, empirical case just for how much damage is being done because we're not creating, you know, a, a true transition between, you know, this, this exchange of time for money and then things that we actually enjoy doing, you know, could be, it could make for a compelling book. Oh, I would sign me up. Hopefully you can come back on the show for that. If you, if you do write that, that'd be amazing. So, well, thank you so, so much. I really, really appreciate this. And I really value your time. So thank you for taking all this time to spend here today. No, it's like two hours flew by. So I knew I was having fun. Oh, awesome. Yes. Oh, yeah. We didn't even talk about that. Yeah. I I just wanted to tell listeners, I know we talked about a lot in this show, but there's so much more in the book that we didn't even remotely touch on. And that's one of the things like time perception and how like taking breaks makes things more fun or less fun. And we didn't even talk about the saver system, which is how to actually make things practically more fun. So I definitely will refer listeners to your book. What links would you like to put out there for people to follow your work? So I write about the science of fun at michaelrucker.com and most of the other stuff can be found at the website. So if you want to check me out, check me out there and, and always feel free to reach out. I love conversations. So anyone that has any questions about this, you know, feel free to find a way to find me and I'll definitely answer. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. Enjoy the rest of your day and hopefully we can talk again in the future. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.